Hello and welcome to this all-new episode of Close Talking, the world's most popular poetry analysis podcast. I am your co-host, Jack Rossiter-Munley. And I am your other co-host, Connor McNamara-Stratton. And we are coming to you with another episode featuring a fantastic poem. It's actually a poem that comes at the beginning of a novel, but we'll get to that in a minute. Very quickly before we do, our... You know, regular reminder that if you are so inclined, we really appreciate it when you hop on over to the iTunes store or Apple Podcasts, however you like to refer to it, and leave us a rating and review. Ratings and reviews are by far the best way to warm our hearts in this trying time and also to help us move up the algorithms of the internet and find more listeners. Yes, the algorithms are inherently biased against poetry, and it's only through our concerted efforts and your concerted efforts that we can um, make strong steps forwards against the uh, algorithms. Of During the this poetry month, we're starting a Twitter campaign, hashtag uh, defeat the algorithm. <laughs> yes, I'm sure that will be happening. <laughs> hashtag defeat the algorithm for poetry 2020. Oh, man. I'm excited about this social media revolution we're about to lead. But before we get to that, we should probably do the poetry analysis that we do, you know, every other week. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, this week we have the poem that opens the book ceremony, which is a poem usually titled as Ceremony um, by Leslie Marmon Silco. Well, I guess one thing I wanted to say is that part of why I picked this poem is because I think given how difficult the present time is dealing with a global pandemic and the ramifications of it, I think a lot of us are turning to stories and storytelling and creating our own little ceremonies within our lives to find strength and to find solace, whether it's creating narratives out of our daily experience and journaling or just, you know, telling stories for yourself being creative and telling stories if you're you know in you know locked down with another person you might entertain each other with stories or you might return to the stories that bring you comfort whether it's books or movies or plays or podcasts or whatever um that sort of elemental human drive towards story and narrative uh comes to the forefront i think in difficult times and we find stories not just to tell ourselves and each other um, but that like give us strength and sustenance. And so I thought a poem about, you know, the power of story and kind of the positive power of story and ceremony was particularly appropriate. Mm. I like that a lot. Yeah. Leslie Marmon Silco is from the Laguna Pueblo tribe. She herself is of uh, mixed heritage, but talks about how she was raised um, in the Laguna culture and that she identifies herself with that culture, even though she also spends most of her written work interrogating, uh, like what having a mixed heritage has meant to her. And in fact, the book ceremony is one of the books where she examines that because the main character is himself of mixed heritage. Um, she basically has been a very successful writer from the time she started out. Her very first story got a lot of critical acclaim and attention, and her first book was Ceremony, which got all sorts of different attention and awards. She herself won the MacArthur in 1981, and she was the Native Writers Circle of the America's Lifetime Achievement Award winner in 1994. 
some of her other major books. The follow-up to Ceremony was a not quite multi. It's it's like a multi-genre book called Storyteller that mixed poetry and prose and if I'm remembering correctly, some photographs as well. It's very cool. Um, and then this sort of magisterial, mega-length novel called The Almanac of the Dead, which I highly, highly recommend. But yeah, we're here to talk about Leslie Marvin Silko's Ceremony. Boom. I can't wait. She's so good. So this is an excerpt from Ceremony, the poem Ceremony, which opens the book Ceremony by Leslie Marmon Silko. Tsitsinako, thought woman, is sitting in her room, and whatever she thinks about appears. She thought of her sisters, Natsitii and Iktsitii, and together they created the universe this world, and the four worlds below. Thought woman, the spider, named things, and as she named them, they appeared. She's sitting in her room, thinking of a story now. I'm telling you the story she is thinking. Ceremony. I will tell you something about stories, he said. They aren't just for entertainment. Don't be fooled. They're all we have, you see. All we have to fight off illness and death. You don't have anything if you don't have the stories. Their evil is mighty, but it can't stand up to our stories. So they try to destroy the stories. Let the stories be confused or forgotten. They would like that. They would be happy, because we would be defenseless then. He's rubbing his belly. I keep it in here, he said. Here, put your hand on it. See? It is moving. There is life here for the people. And in the belly of this story, the rituals and the ceremony are still growing. What she said, the only cure I know is a good ceremony. That's what she said. Sunrise. Okay. So that's the poem. Uh, and <laughs> the thing that happens, just for some context, the thing that happens right after this is, uh, at the beginning of the book is that you like find the main character. And I think a little bit of the implication is like the sun rises and that story begins uh, of the book. Like the sun rises on him. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and also like there's a lot of, you know, uh, context and like cultural or historical that we could get into. But the basic one that I found really helpful is that the poem in part, at least is a retelling of a like traditional Laguna creation myth. Uh, so the thought woman, um, is like as a part of you know, the oral tradition of like the Laguna people. Um, she is like in the story, she is the one who's, you know, creates the universe basically. And so in part, the poem is a retelling of that, um, of that story. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Titsinako is thought woman or spider woman in this 
story. And yeah, she's this like creator figure. And then Nautiti is a uh, corn woman and Iktiti is reed woman. And this like element is sort of threaded through the story of the, of the novel ceremony as well. Like there are elements of this that show up throughout it. Yeah. I really like this because it's, independent of being the opening to the book it is this interesting partial retelling of legend but also this kind of meditation on stories and storytelling and their power and importance which seemed particularly relevant lately yeah (laughs) yeah no i completely agree um yeah no it's really it's it's fascinating because Um, it's one of those things where it's kind of like a story and a story and a story and a story. Um, so it's like, A, it's the opening to a novel. So it's already like a framing for that and like a part of that in a, in a kind of way. Um, it's retelling the sort of, you know, creation myth of the Laguna Pueblo. Um, but then there's also like, then the poem is so <laughs> it's kind of funny i think um like there's this part in the middle she is sitting in her room the thought woman and thinking of a story now i'm telling you the story she is thinking um ceremony and then it's like i will tell you something about stories he said they aren't just for entertainment So there we have, like, um, not only is Thought Woman part of the traditional, you know, the creation myth, uh, but in the poem, Thought Woman is thinking of the story, and then the speaker is relaying the story that Thought Woman is thinking of. And then, uh, would you say that, like, the he said, is he the kind of main character that's to come or is that because it's kind of a little unknown in the poem who the the he is uh you know it acquires a very almost like you know fiction prose style with like your in scene of someone who's saying something and it's like he said and then it's a little bit of a mind bender to your point about is the he the main character from the novel? My own reading is that he is, but he is the main character from the end of the novel, not at the beginning. It is after the journey he goes through where he experiences all of these different uh, stories and healing ceremonies and all this sort of stuff. It's him with the knowledge he's gained over the course of the novel, but it's plopped down at the beginning, which is like another analytical loop added in to this as you were saying like it's story on story on story stacking which i think sets up just how important and integral storytelling and stories and ceremonies are but it also i think you're right even if it's not intentionally funny it does also set up uh like a playful relationship to stories they're incredibly important they're very serious they have you know, in super weight and power, and they're these essential things, but also because they are so essential and they are so integrated, there's a level of familiarity with them, almost like a really good friendship where you can be very serious, but you can also be silly and you can flip between those two pretty easily. And like one doesn't negate the other, it actually strengthens it. 
Yeah. Okay. That's really interesting. That makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. Cause it's, it's interesting. Cause like also like on the one hand, I, I like said all those different story in a story and I was like, Jesus poem is like, seems like it's a, I don't know, like a post like modern opaque kind of blah, blah, blah. But then the other, the beauty of the poem is like, the language is very, you know, pared down and pretty simple. And so the, the layers are acquired, like, almost without you realizing. And it's, like, pretty easy to follow. Um, but then, you know, like, the effect of the layering, I think, is still, like, something that's, you know, really doing a lot of work. Um, yeah, and it's interesting because I was sort of thinking about, like, and this is something that you said, it's like, what's the, what would be the difference of just sort of like, say, telling the creation myth sort of straight up versus like telling it in this roundabout, many, many framed way. Um, and one thing, which is kind of what you had brought up is like, it highlights the importance of storytelling sort of itself, where you like, because there's so much, so many layers of storytelling, um, you know, there's the content of the story and then there's the telling of the story. And by kind of layering it so much, your sort of, your attention is drawn toward the telling um, itself, which often, you know, like, you know, not every poem announces that it's a poem. And like a lot of the joy of, um, poetry or literature is to be sort of, you know, transported into some other place, uh, potentially. Um, and in, in those moments, you know, you're, you're in the content of the story rather than you're thinking about the telling itself. Um, but then I was also thinking of, this is like maybe a very weird, uh, <laughs> connection to make, but I was trying to think of like other, like many framed narratives that I've like encountered. Um, and one, the one that stuck out to me was Plato's symposium, uh, which is a real deep cut. <laughs> one of the um, deepest cuts in Western <laughs> literature, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. I know. I don't, it's yeah. Um, but anyway, but basically in the symposium, there's a, like a million things that are very different about this poem. But basically there's like, they're trying to like describe, you know, what the nature of love is. But the way that it's told is like, um, rather than, you know, a piece of philosophy that's like, I am announcing a definition and I will explain it and then I will prove it. It's basically like, you know, this party and then new people come like to the party and then they like tell this, they ran into someone on the way to the party who like was in this kind of situation. And then they told that person about what they thought love was or something. And then they sort of relay it to the group. Um, anyway, so what you get is this kind of um, like, basically you know 
kind of like a play or a sort of a dramatic like multiple voices um which like anyway it's doing different things but one thing that it the symposium i felt like was interesting about was like the and this is maybe not what plato was trying to do i cannot speculate as to his intentions um like the truth or the right most right definition of love is not attainable or even the most important thing basically um because of the way that everything is so framed um and so like no no character emerges like as the ultimate authority on love um you probably get a sense of like what plato likes the best based on like some of them are sort of dopes and things like that you know rather than sort of emerging with like one um you know like truth that you know one piece of dogma you have this like whole range of like ideas about what love can be. And it's not quite happening that way in this poem, um but I do feel like the other connection um is it was making me think of when we talked about um DG Nanook Okpik's poem Warming and she had talked about in her like um she did kind of like a uh sort of description of her own work and process uh in this anthology um new poets of native nations um and in it she kind of was saying like the poems that i write are like not my voice you know like only like i'm telling the story like alongside the stories of my ancestors and future people you know uh like at the same time and i am just sort of giving voice to something that's already there um and so in the same sense that like in the symposium the authority of the voice is kind of like fragmented or dispersed um and in the poem ceremony silco as the speaker you know we we can sometimes think about like you know the speaker as and we we often turn to poems of like uh for wisdom or for like sort of observations um that are like you know really powerful and oftentimes like one voice kind of you know like speaking not like um pedantically but like you know with great force is like uh like a really powerful effect you know um but here because of all the layering of the stories and all this different storytelling like silco as the poet and also the speaker as the speaker of the poem is kind of like spreading out like their authority um as storytellers and so you get the sense of like there's not you know even though this is like the creation myth of how the universe got started like there's no clear beginning about like when the story first got told um and in that sense there's less you know 
exclusive ownership over it, I guess. I don't know if that makes sense. No, that totally makes sense, and I love it. And it puts me in mind of Walter Ong. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Oh, but, I love Walter Ong. Right, of course. Yeah, so Walter Ong, Orality and Literacy. <laughs> and it's very much, I think, sort of what you're getting at, talking about you know this both diffusion of authorial authority, but at the same time, that's just kind of existing in a world where stories are. They aren't written down. They aren't codified. They exist. And that's sort of the dividing line that he draws between oral traditions and literate traditions is that in oral traditions, stories just are, whereas in literate traditions, they are given physical form. And then there is a notion of an official version of a story. And then there is the study of stories, basically. Um, And those are the moves that happen in the shift between an oral tradition and a literate tradition. Um, And I think what's really interesting is that in some ways, having an oral tradition where stories just exist um, kind of gives them a power all their own, separate from whoever is telling them. And I think the the way that I at least understand the relationship that this poem then uh, like creates to stories is that story is an entity that exists and can be accessed by people, but is not one that people can claim ownership of. It is something that they can sort of bring within them. It is something that can be accessed through ceremonies and other um, like actions but it is its own thing. And in fact, I think if you go through the poem, you can see instances of that where, you know, you talk about the power of stories. Um, I'll tell you something about stories. He said, they aren't just for entertainment. Don't be fooled. They're all we have to fight off illness and death. Um, But you also get this notion of them being separate uh, because even later on, where you get the sense that the he is maybe talking about stories that are within him. So it says, he rubbed his belly. I keep it in here, he said. Here, put your hand on it. See, it is moving. There is life here for the people. It doesn't actually say that that's a story. And in fact, right after that, it says, and in the belly of this story, the rituals and the ceremony are still growing. So the he there is created as this entity that has life for the people within him. But the very next stanza is about story as a separate, almost personified and embodied entity that contains its own gifts within its belly. So I think there's almost a parody there between a suggested physical person's body and this entity of story that exists, which I find really captivating as something that the poem does. And again, gets back to kind of what you were saying. So like, in the symposium, you get an idea of what Plato thinks about love, but it's almost this preservation of an oral tradition of all these different voices telling you what they think. And that hints at this, you know, perhaps out there somewhere is a platonic ideal of love that cannot be effectively (laughs) accessed by individuals, but which is an entity whose existence is suggested by all of these people trying and failing to articulate it. And I feel like this goes in that direction in terms of its relationship to stories. Yeah. Oh, that's 
Great. I love that a lot. Um, and yeah, that's such a good distinction to pull out with and in the belly of this story uh, being similar, but like, yeah, just another distinction and different from the, the he. Um, and it makes me think of this other part in the poem, like that's after the don't be fooled, there are all we have, you see. You know, um, the he says, you don't have anything if you don't have the stories. Um, and it makes me think about, like, s there's, like, the story, you know, the content of the story, um, what's happening in the story. Then there's, like, the telling of the story, the, the sort of action of telling it. But then there's, like, having story um which is kind of like you know he says you don't have anything if you don't have the stories um and obviously i think there's like close connections between all three of those things and the telling of stories you know to you know like new generations of people allow them to kind of in effect have those stories um but i think like and, you know, their ability to access them, you know, as as you were kind of saying. Um, but I, I I sort of think that is like especially important in, in terms of, you know, what comes after then, you know, their evil is mighty, but it can't stand up to our stories. Um, so they try to destroy the stories, let the stories be confused or forgotten. They would like that. They would be happy because we would be defenseless then. Um, and we have this kind of huge they, um, which like probably can be read many ways, but I, one sort of seemingly clear reading of it to me is like, like, uh, you know, white settler, like American people uh, who have kind of um, both in the long historical sense, you know, like committed genocide against indigenous people to, uh, you know, in the Americas, um, you know, and then otherwise, like, you know, like, displace them um, and enslave them. Um, but then also in the kind of like specific um, sense of what might be, you know, uh, Silco's like own experience or like the, so there was, you know, um, you know, I was just reading, you know, like, so she grew up uh, initially on the Laguna uh, reservation, um, but then she was sent to like this, like kind of boarding school, like Christian boarding school, which was a very common and, you know, thing like to send indigenous kids to these boarding schools where, you know, oftentimes they weren't allowed to you know, speak their, you know, they could only speak English or, you know, things like that. Um, and, you know, one, like, the effects of that are, you know, devastating in many numbers, number of ways, but one effect of it is it, like, takes one's, like, stories away from you. Like, if you can't, speak your, you know, your native language, you can't, like, 
really tell those stories as easily that are like essential to, you know, your culture or whatever. Um, and so I, I kind of was thinking like the, the storytelling is important, but then also like having the stories to tell and like making sure that they have them is like very important in their kind of resistance against like white people and white supremacy. Um, which I, I haven't read ceremony, but I got the sense it, I know that a lot of her writing has to do with like alienation from white society is kind of like some, I think that's a quote from maybe the poetry foundation, but, um, at any rate, yeah, I just, that was another kind of dimension that I was really interested by. Definitely. And in terms of the language, as you brought up, if you don't have your language, you can't receive stories from elders who don't speak English. If that's the tradition that you're raised in, like that can be a whole like generational barrier for people. Many immigrant communities, in addition to native communities, struggle with that all the time. If young people don't learn their native languages, which is very easy not to do in the United States, then, you know, maybe your grandparents have a whole well of stories that you're just never going to access um, or like have an extra barrier to access. Uh, to your last point, I think that's really interesting. Obviously, yeah, I think there's deep personal resonances for Silco and her own background. Um, in the context of the book, uh, the main character is a returning World War II veteran who is suffering from what is usually referred to in ceremony as battle fatigue, basically PTSD. Um, and so definitely alienation. He's also of mixed ancestry, which leads to all sorts of different complications, as you can imagine. Um, but in terms of who the they is, uh, whose evil is mighty, that is perhaps separating him from the stories and the ceremonies that could be healing to him, which is sort of the general arc of the novel, absolutely it's, you know, he went to go fight in this war, and World War Two has all sorts of different, uh, you know, history that is laid onto it fairly or unfairly. It is usually thought of as the good war where the United States heroically liberated the world, uh, you know, stepped in, did its part for the cause of freedom and justice, which is part of the story, but also for many people from the United States who were from marginalized uh, populations, it was this very weird experience of being asked to go fight fascism and oppression these governments who were saying what in the United States, you could say it was a version of saying the quiet part loud of what the United States was doing. You have these governments in Europe who are basically coming out and saying that they think groups of people are inferior in the United States, claiming that that's terrible. But at the same time, you know, you have German POWs who were taken to the South and treated better than many black people were. There's many accounts of that. Um, my favorite thing about uh, my favorite anecdote about Hitler is that he had a fortified train that he rode around Europe in that has all kinds of crazy like modifications to be protected and had a whole bathroom car that was all fancy and whatever but he called his train America with a K until the United States entered the war because he so admired what the United States had done to the native populations 
Oh, man. Right. So you can see why they're evil. I, I Basically, I, I think you are correct in that their <laughs> evil is, uh, in this case, it may specifically be referring to how the main character in Ceremony feels about his war experience, whether he's fully, you know, speaking it in that way at this point yet or not. But this is an element of how he feels about his his war experience. Um, and then the other thing about World War Two is that uh, it served as a, a major catalyst for the civil rights movements that then happened shortly after it ended because it was because of the rhetoric around inclusion that the United States chose to deploy against the obviously much worse Nazi government in Germany. Uh, like the Nazis were the worst and terrible and awful in every imaginable way. But because the United States spoke about itself as their opposite, there was then a greater push, particularly in the African-American legal community at the time with people like Charles Hamilton Houston and Thurgood Marshall, who were saying, wait a minute, uh, all that stuff you said was great, but now what if you followed through on it? And the United States was like, nah, I'm good. And then they were like, um, okay, but you're not. And then they changed history. So, yeah, I think that that stanza about evil and they is really key, um, both because it kind of sets up the stakes, but again, it reasserts that stories are this like really essential balm against, you know, vicious external forces. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, that's 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 really great. Um, I agree with all that. Um, yeah, and I, you know, just thinking about the poem some more, like, and, and stories, um, like, not to make it overly, (laughs) um, complicated, but it's just interesting to me, like, the many different ways that stories are kind of approached in this poem, um, but then, like, we also have at the end, you know, like, and in the belly of this story, the rituals and the ceremony are still growing. Um, and there's this kind of, you know, you were, you were talking about it and, you know, there's also this, the, the fact that like a story is a living thing. And in that way too, like, um, you know, it changes. And this is another thing going back to like, (laughs) Uh, Walter Ong um, and like from what I remember of the you know the differences which I'm sure have been problematized and made complicated but um, like his distinctions between oral like traditions and like you know printing traditions and cultures uh, is that in like the um, you know in print culture and in writing traditions there's this like static kind of or you know in the same way that you get you try to get to the authoritative source what that also means is you get something that doesn't change so that you can refer to this thing and be like no this is what it is and this is what it will always will be um rather than like um, you know, an oral tradition, which as he would say, like in its retelling, um, like it, it's changing. And, you know, so there's no, like, there's less fixedness 
of the stories themselves and they have a more like organic quality and that's sort of like made possible by the tellings of them over and over again yeah i just was it's there's like kind of rare the poem is like different than a lot of poems that i encounter in you know certain ways because it lacks like a lot of concrete grounding if that makes sense um starting with the with thought woman in her room um and then we have the kind of creation story but then we like move she's sitting in her room we don't really know what the room looks like and then the eye comes in is like i'll tell you what she's thinking about and then the he comes sort of out of nowhere and like at the same time the language is is like a lot of um spoken you can imagine someone saying it rather than like you know so, i guess like something written down which is just to say like it it sort of relies less on um you know these kind of like concrete details like okay here you are i'm sort of bringing you into this room or I'm describing this object, which will then become the metaphor, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, with all this concrete detail and like all this kinds of stuff, this poem is not interested in doing that. But then when those moments like do kind of happen, they're kind of, they're interesting. Um, and like the belly is like one of the most sort of like uh, visible and concrete moments of the poem i felt um where you know it's it's like he rubbed his belly <laughs> and then you jump to the belly of this story and then you kind of you're making that figurative leap there um and then also the end the very end of the poem sunrise is like another like it's not again it's just one word um and it's you know, as you were saying, kind of like framing the opening of the novel. Um, but it's also ending this poem, which has been like less about images and sort of concrete details and scenes. It ends on an image um, and it ends on like not a statement, you know, just sunrise. Um, and I guess I wasn't quite sure what to make of that, but I, I felt like it was a very interesting movement um, in the poem and like to end there, like felt important somehow. I totally agree. It's the only really, cause even the belly in the room, there's a lot of versions of what that looks like. You know, there's a lot of bellies out there. There's a lot of rooms. <laughs> like you heard I, it here I, first. There's a lot of bellies out there, folks. <laughs> Breaking closed talking news. Uh, a lot of bellies out there. A lot of rooms. Um, but like, and then even <laughs> after you hear about his belly, then you hear about the belly of a story. So it's like now this nebulous idea of belly as like warm embodied container that can also be applied to story. Uh, and at least for me, when I hear room at the beginning of the poem, I'm immediately in like the still in some sort of dream space room that doesn't really have walls and is just kind of wherever thought woman hangs out. And <laughs> it's not 
a place. It's not a placey place. You know, it's not like yeah, yeah. It's a it's a it's a whole thing. But we <laughs> all have a pretty standard image of a sunrise. I mean, no two sunrises are alike. Blah blah blah. Whatever. There's a sun in our world. You know, like. <laughs> The sun to belly ratio is pretty extreme. That's all I'm saying. True. A lot more bellies than suns. Many more bellies than suns. Again, heard it here first. Man, we're covering <laughs> a lot of new ground. Um, as, uh, as 538 would say, hashtag analysis. <laughs> even though all sunrises are technically different, it's still a much more uh, unified image for most readers where you have an idea of what a sunrise is in a way that I think you don't have that handle on anything else. And also it ends on this very con like the most concrete, I won't say very concrete. It's the most concrete moment in the poem, though still very general, but it also ends on this very hopeful image. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah. And I also think obviously the title of the novel and the poem is ceremony. Um, so that's obviously very important. Uh, but I think, like the poem also ends, you know, the only cure is ceremony. And to me, I was just, I don't have much to say about it, but to me, I was thinking about stories and storytelling and, and the way that like the ceremony in one sense is like the, the physical embodiment of the storytelling potentially, you know, where you, you like, um, like all, like I was kind of in the beginning, I was saying story so many times that it felt very abstract for a moment. Um, but the idea of a ceremony is a very embodied, um, like event. And I think like that plus the sunrise sort of, um, grounds us at the end in, um, the physical in a way that, um, yeah, I think, you know, as you were saying, it's very hopeful. Um, but also, yeah, just like, um, I don't know, just very cool. I don't have a better word for it, um, but I like it a lot. Definitely. And to your point about the, just the sheer number of times the word story is repeated and the number of times it's referenced in slightly different ways, I thought it was interesting because um, on the one hand, it does lead to this sort of, you know, is it this postmodern deconstruction of the idea of story? Is it this like, you know, dispersal of what that means? Or on the other hand, is it just like the most basic language you can use to talk about this thing? Sure, it kind of shifts around on you, but it's just like every time we're talking about stories, I'm just going to say story. Um, and it's almost <laughs> like you're just throwing another stone in the bucket to make it more... Uh, to have more unified heft. And I think it's cool that it can go in both directions. Yeah. And both kind really... of end up in the same space. Cause I think by having a diffusion of what story could be, that lends it a certain kind of power. And by honing in on one idea of story and giving that more weight, that is also a different kind of power. Um, but I think in both directions, the idea of story becomes empowered. I agree with that completely. I like that a lot. Should we read it again? Let's read it again. So this is excerpt from Ceremony by Leslie Marmon Silko. Tsitsinako, thought woman, is sitting in her room, and whatever she thinks about appears. 
she thought of her sisters, Nautsitii and Iktsitii, and together they created the universe, this world, and the four worlds below. Thought Woman, the spider, named things, and as she named them, they appeared. She's sitting in her room, thinking of a story now. I'm telling you the story she is thinking. Ceremony. I will tell you something about stories, he said. They aren't just for entertainment. Don't be fooled. They're all we have, you see. All we have to fight off illness and death. You don't have anything if you don't have the stories. Their evil is mighty, but it can't stand up to our stories. So they try to destroy the stories, let the stories be confused or forgotten. They would like that. They would be happy because we would be defenseless then. He rubbed his belly. I keep it in here, he said. Here, put your hand on it. See? It is moving. There is life here. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. This is co-host Jack Rossiter Munley. Just reminding you that there are a ton of ways that you can get in touch with us, and we love to hear from you. It's always great to know if you have a different reading of this poem or any of the other poems we've covered, or if there are any poems you wish we would cover in the future. You can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com, or the show and Connor and myself are all on Twitter. That's another great way to connect. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn. Connor is at Connor M. Stratton, and the show is at Close Talking. You can also find us on Instagram at Close Talking Poetry or on Facebook at facebook.com slash close talking. See you next time.